things must come to an end. Today, it's not the end of the Corey Truax Show, but it's, it is the end of its nine-year run on his radio talk. We're going to have a good time with it on this week's Corey Truax Show. to say goodbye to things that you love, but there often comes a time where that is necessary. That's where we find ourselves on this Saturday morning or Saturday evening if you are listening to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk at 8 o'clock. It was 2014, I think, when the estimable, the or I'm trying to say esteemable, he sh- should be esteemed, Gary Miller invited me to start doing a weekly show on WHRT. And we creatively titled that the Corey Truax Show. And now as that uh, that changes formats today, leads us to our final time together, at least on terrestrial radio. If you have been with me on terrestrial radio, let me highly encourage, come with me. The podcast is going to be different. I'm probably going to even take next week off, maybe the next couple weeks off. I have a, a vacation up to New York City after my wife's uh, best friend gets married which up there. So we're going to spend some time up there. Uh, and I will come back in different formats. I suspect I will do more shows, but fewer minutes. They'll be way much less long. I'm hopeful to do interviews. Uh, my, I've had some folks even in my family have some good ideas to, for, for folks to interview. So it's going to change over time. If you're part of the Terrestrial Radio family, come on over to CoreyTruax.com, CoreyTruax.com, or wherever you find podcasts and stick with me. So welcome to the finale to the grand finale of the show my name is if you haven't picked it up yet Corey Truax amongst many other things I get to serve the uh, the awesome people of Beachwood Church we are meeting in Greenville at 10 30 on Sunday mornings you're invited any given Sunday morning we're coming up on Palm Sunday then Easter it is the holiest time of the year and so if you have been out of church it's a good time it's always a good time to get started back in it let me also point you over to the podcast feed for something else. I have been getting together, it's now been twice, with the host of the Westminster, Westminster Doxology Podcast. His name is Cody Fields. We talk about important stuff and the consequences of some of our theological wranglings and evolutions. And so if you if you are interested in such things, that's over on the podcast feed as well. Just look for the Corey Truax Show. I want to say goodbye well today, although it's not really... A goodbye. It's almost a just a sentimental goodbye for me. I cannot tell you how much I love talk radio. I won't spend a lot of time on this. I promise. There, there is so some. There's something so unique about it now. Even your favorite YouTubers, they are often not live. They are so highly edited. Your morning shows. I'm talking like TV morning shows, the Today Show, that kind of stuff. So highly scripted. You've probably even seen some of those kind of creepy compilations on YouTube where you'll find you know, 30 news stations from a, TV news stations from across the country all read the same script because the parent company wrote the script and the newscasters just read what they were supposed to read. Everything is so scripted. Talk radio is appealing to me in a lot of ways because it, to me, I know this is toot my own horn, to me, it separates one kind of talker from another. This is extemporaneous. I, I come to the show with notes. I got a laptop open here with, with some notes on it. But in general, 
I let synapses fire. And talk radio people do. We let synapses fire. We, we let thoughts connect. We think on the fly. And that, for you know, for the record, it got a lot of us in trouble because we were so extemporaneous. Sometimes you say stuff without the proper filter, and you get yourself into all kinds of problems with that. With that. And I know while my show is pre-recorded, I've tried to keep that feel. It is very rare that I will allow myself to stop or re-record something. I want to make it feel as live as possible. So anyway, I love this method, love this medium. Things change. You know, a TV killed the radio star, right? That was the the old song. They were wrong. Radio stuck around, and it will for a long time, and the format changes. But uh, anyway, we'll move on to pure pure podcasting, and I hope you will stick with me over there as we say goodbye well today. Here's how I thought we should start with our goodbye. I'm actually going to do the chronological Bible reading that I said we would be doing on the show. I'm going to try to keep that up uh, now, now that we are changing formats. But if you were reading through your Bible chronologically, on the plan that I use at least, this week you would have finished Deuteronomy. Here in the first quarter of the year, you would have finally finished the five books of the law. And as you come out of that into maybe the exciting stories of Joshua and then uh, the conquering of the land, Jericho and Ai, and you go into the kind of sad book like Judges and the cycle of sin, I want to, I want to reflect on some messages from Deuteronomy. So here we go. Number one, I have in an uh, in, in introductory thought that the structure of Deuteronomy is quite unique. It is set up like an ancient Hittite agreement. The Hittites at the time were a dominant force, and they would take over some lesser nation and write a document to talk about the uh, the relationship between the vassal state, the servant state, and the chief state that took them over. If you look at the structure of Deuteronomy, you'll actually find that it is largely set up that way. I didn't come up with that. That's actually in one of my study Bibles. A lot of the scholars remark that Moses is borrowing from the Hittite structure, but also giving a contrast to it. Because in part, something we're going to talk about here in a second, the Hittite structures were often set up as just purely if-then clauses. If you do these things, then the Hittites will continue to smile upon you. So it's set up like this ancient agreement from one king, the greater, who is dominant, setting up a, an, an agreement with the lesser, his people. So pick up on the dynamics of God-to-Israel relationship, but also God-to-church dynamic, God-to-you dynamic. He sets up the agreement, the greater, to the lesser. And that gives him every opportunity, if he wants, to be an oppressive conqueror. Instead, we find in the agreement that he is benevolent. He purposes his love towards his people. Takes us to chapter 4 then. It's, uh, did I pull this up? Yeah, I did pull. Here we go, Google Chrome. One of my favorite parts of the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 4, it gives you a purpose. Why, why in Deuteronomy, which means, by the way, second law, the second reading of the law, the second issuing of the law, why would we be people keeping God's commandments? And I want to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting in verse 5. See, I've taught you statutes and rules that you should do them in the land that you're entering and take possession of it. So here you go. You're going into the land I promised you. I've given you statutes and rules, law to understand. Why? Verse 6. Keep them and do them 
For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that is set before you today? One of, not chief, but one of the reasons we love the law, we follow the law, that we are enthusiastically obedient to the statutes of the kings is so that the rest of the world would look around and say, man, what kind of king do they follow? In the more mo- back then, it would have been, oh, they're they're not committing adultery. Their husbands ha- their hu- their husbands are faithful. Their kids honor their parents. They're not a covetous people trying to undercut each other all the time to get their stuff. They have a system where they don't lie to each other, and there's consequences to the lying. Whoa! They don't just adopt. All the other surrounding tribes, gods, they're faithful to one. Oh, this is a different people. In the modern day parlance, oh, she doesn't participate in the awesome, the in the office gossip and denigrating people. He seems to always have an encouraging word, and not to backbite or talk bad about others. I mean, that woman seems to really admire her husband. She seems excited to be married to him, and that man. Seems very dedicated to taking care of his his wife and family. I mean, that family has got their ha- their house has people over all the time. They are generous with their time. I mean, that family seems to always have extra and gives it away. When someone in the neighborhood has a you know has a baby has a need, they're always giving the newlyweds and the new folks that move into the neighborhood gifts. They're just so open handed with their space and their time. I mean, that person doesn't seem to be so flustered and angry all the time like everyone else around them is when it comes to the news cycle. They must find peace and hope somewhere else. What kind of God are they, sir? What kind of person is that? One of the reasons to love the law, to follow the law, is we demonstrate something to the nations around us. And the nations are now your neighbors and your coworkers, those you interact with regularly. That's chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, chapter 7. I love... The, the difference that uh, God has in his covenant versus those old Hittite covenants. The Hittite covenants were if-then clauses. If you do the right things, then we'll continue to be in good relationship. But God is very honest here about his covenant with Israel. In chapter 7, verse 7, he says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord's brought you out. He goes through some other things, like you, you weren't of military might, you weren't all that impressive. He loves you because he loves you. He, I, the Lord God chose his people because the Lord God is good, because the Lord God is generous, because the Lord God is righteous. It's not because you guys are nailing it, and they were not nailing it. This is at the very end of going through the wilderness and getting to the promised land. They were very faithless people. So God's love is purpose towards us, not because we're good, but because he's good. And you should find so much comfort in that. I know a lot of folks that struggle with a lot of guilt. I was once one of them. The Lord has been good to start bringing me out of that. 
And the, the way you defeat guilt is by recognizing the, the victory won on the cross. How Deuteronomy is just a preview of what's to come of the great lawgiver and lawkeeper, Jesus, the both giver and keeper of the law. So chapter 4, we follow the law so that the world may know our God is glorious and good, that we're distinct. In chapter 7, we know that his love is purposed on his people because he's good, not because they're good. And then at the very end, before Moses dies, he gives them a song. And in that song, he sort of says, you're not going to keep the law. You guys aren't going to make it. You're not going to get this right. But the Lord will keep you. His covenant love, his everlasting love, his long-suffering love is on you even when you fail. I mean, the, the book of Deuteronomy has the gospel all over it. The gospel is all over the scriptures, but, the Deuter- but Deuteronomy and the giving of the second law, how it preaches to the world what it needs, how it demonstrates God's saving love and his faithfulness to us, there's very few books as affirming of God's heart towards his people as the book of Deuteronomy. I have a lot more I want to do today. It's kind of like a normal show when it comes to topics, uh, but they're, they're deeply meaningful. I want to talk about why it's appearing that millennials and Gen Xers are skipping their midlife crises. That used to be a phenomenon that seems to be going away. And uh, there's more data here about how leftism correlates to poor mental health, but I want to talk about why and why some folks are getting the, the reason wrong. We'll do that and more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I found the most interesting article with the premise that mental health professionals are saying that the age group that we would call middle age now, that's my uh, elder millennials and my upper 30s go all the way to the to the 50s, so that's Gen X, that the number of people that are experiencing what we would typically call a midlife crisis is diminishing. And I want to talk about why that might be and then some general deeper thoughts about Uh, the state of mental health in relation to our ideology. We'll do that coming up next here on the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. It is, of course, the last episode of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk, but it will continue on the podcast. I'm becoming more and more convinced I'm going to take a break. A couple weeks, three weeks maybe. I'm going to come back around with some kind of new formatting. So hope you will follow along. Just go find the podcast wherever you find podcasts, including this. Spotify, where I put my, my podcast out, Um, They bought Anchor, where I used to put the podcast out. Uh, They have a tool now called Q&A. And so wherever you find podcasts, you should be able to find in my show notes a question I'm going to put up, and I would love to get your response. I want to know what you think the themes of this show are. As it ends its nine-year run on terrestrial radio, and we'll have some kind of continuation in the future, the people who listen regularly, which is now hundreds when it comes to regular listeners. For a while, there was up towards 2,000. It's it's over uh, 1,000 now that I think it listens to every episode. So I would love for even 10% of you to respond. Tell me, what do you think the themes are? The things, things that keep coming up over and over again on the show? Because I have an experiment I want to do with that. Um, all right, I think that's all you need to know on announcements. Oh, yeah, you can find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for my weird name. You can email the show anytime at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. There was an interesting premise to that story that uh, mental health providers were used to finding people in their late 30s to early 50s coming into their offices with crises. 
and they would put them in the category of of midlife crisis. It was seeing that life went by and it didn't work out the way they thought or it wasn't their lives ended up not being what they thought or youth was getting away from them and it was causing a great deal of discomfort. That was much more common, apparently, with the generations behind mine and behind Gen X. It's even a fairly normal trope that we make fun of. We would say the guy turns 50 and, or you know, his late 40s. This is where he, unfortunately, sinfully, divorces his wife, gets the sports car, and starts dating the, the young girl in her 20s because he needs to hold on to his youth. For women, it's a, I'm not going to give that trope or that example. Uh, it worked itself out in a different way. They're finding that that's not happening again. And I want to give you their theory, and then I'll give you mine. The theory of these mental health folks is that my age group and older had these shared experiences. That somewhere in our teen years or in the early 20s, we were experiencing war for the first time in a long time in America. There was the thing that happened in Kuwait, which was real, but it was in and out fairly quick. But the Iraq, Afghanistan war and then the Iraq war marked my teen years. And let's start with 9-11. And that didn't end. Like you think about going to war in 03 with Iraq. It was 01 for Afghanistan or maybe early 2002, the gigantic financial crisis that was the most intense financial situation since the Great Depression comes in 07-08, which then led to the explosion of social media for all of us in 2012 that none of us was ready for. It really affected our brains. This, these people surmise and theorize, I think wrongly, that the, some of the storms, hurricanes, made climate change make us all feel like we were at... At risk, I know that's not the case for anybody I know. And then that rise of social media then gave way to, I think, inarguably the most bitter, partisan, divisive time, that 2015-16 election cycle, into then later uh, a pandemic, or at least what felt like chaos in that administration, and then the chaos of the pandemic into uh, what what was the, the 2020 cycle, and that's what they're saying is, there is no midlife crisis because people in their 30s and 40s have only ever experienced crisis. So this, so having a midlife crisis makes no difference. So I, I guess I can only speak for myself. That does not resonate with me at all. I mean, I, I was a teenager during the Iraq War. I graduated college into the Great Recession. I experienced a lot of the emotions of the divisiveness of 16. I've lived, I mean, I was really the guinea pig for social media. It first came to colleges, like with, with Facebook. I, I haven't felt that crisis really much at all in life. I, I, maybe they're going to find some data to suggest that. But going into this next topic, that's there, there's a certain group of people that felt that they were in crisis. They allowed themselves to let outside forces make them feel like they were in crisis, but they never actually were. The financial crisis was was real. It hurt a lot of people. The response to COVID, I didn't say COVID, the response to COVID was genuinely damaging to a lot of people. But existential crisis is not something I have felt. I I wonder if that's been true of you. I'd love to hear that on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or uh, Corey Truex Show at gmail.com. If you have, if you're about my age, maybe a little bit younger, a little older, have you actually felt your life, your way of being, was threatened by Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, the, the war on terror, 
the pandemic or the response to the pandemic, uh, electoral division, is that made you actually feel existentially at crisis? I never have. I also don't expect to have a midlife crisis because I think having a sound mind given to us by uh, our, our minds being transformed by, by, by being a follower of Jesus will prevent that. Okay, so that was the theory that got me thinking about those things. And then I saw a story from uh, the Free Press and by one of the people I think is, the, is one of the more important thinkers around uh, today. His name is Jonathan Haidt. He's a professor of psychology at NYU. He wrote the, well, with his uh, colleague, Greg Lukianoff, wrote one of the most important books of the last several years called The Coddling of the American Mind. There are, there are three public intellectuals that I think are the most important of our time, Simon Sinek, uh, Jonathan Haidt, and Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell has started to, I think, diminish the quality of his thinking as he's been affected by wokeism some. They're all three not Christians, I heard a friend of mine recently, Logan, said uh, he thinks Simon Sinek is a Christian, he, but Simon doesn't know it yet. And I get, I get that. I actually feel like that for a lot of these guys. They tend to think in ways biblically informed because they grew up in a culture, Western culture, biblically informed. They just haven't come into the realization of, of Jesus and who he is yet. In any event, uh, Jonathan Haidt does good work in the mental health world from a secular perspective. And consider that who we're hearing from. This is New York University in the mental health field. He's left of center, secularist. And so some of the things that he says comes with some credibility for people the opposite of me. They might actually listen to him because of his positioning. He's document he is documenting with a lot of other people the state of mental health especially amongst our youth, the d- diminishing mental health of our youth. And when I say that, that means things like the rise of anxiety, depression, OCD, these types of things. He has mapped that this is particularly true, striated by ideology. So his article came out this month on his website. You can find it. It's easy to find. Just look for Jonathan Haidt. Um, It's spelled H-A-I-D-T. The title is Why the Mental Health of Liberal Girls Sank First and Fastest. It's long, takes a lot of time to read, but I think it's worth it. I put it up on my social, most of my social media if you want to go try to find it. I want to give you the premises that he came to, not for uh, just really an examination of young liberal girls, but instead to prepare us to have conversations with folks highly affected by a secularizing and left-leaning as it leans that direction, uh, interacting with that world so as to help people. We're seeing it's a very real effect. A lot of the depression rates, anxiety rates, all that. It's one of the big themes of the show. And so let me give you what I learned. One, what, one of the core parts of their story in their book, uh, Coddling of the American Mind for Haidt and Lukianoff, was the, the lawyer of the group is Lukianoff. He noticed something in his own life. Uh, he was given to depression and he was learning in his therapy sessions, one of the most common methods of therapy in the United States. If you don't know this, you need to know this because, guys, a lot of people you know have been through therapy, they're going through it now online, and the method of therapy right now is based on something called cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And he was learning how to, in, uh, in his therapy sessions, 
how to take his the emotions he was feeling, the thoughts he would have, and to respond to them, to control his thoughts, control his emotions. Give you some of the examples that he gives in the book. That he would catastrophize. He would assume the worst. He had a lot of black and white thinking, is what you call it in the CBT world. There is just good and there is just bad. A lot of fortune-telling going on into the future and predicting bad things. Or sometimes in CBD therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, it's because people start fortune-telling and imagining unrealistic outcomes that are good, and they end up being depressed by the outcome. I mean, one of the other ones he mentions is emotional reasoning. You know, those two words don't go together. If you're emotional, you don't reason well. And if you're reasoning well, you're, you're probably going to kick out a lot of emotion. And so he learned the skills in his own depression as an attorney or his own treatment for depression to control those things. And what he thought he, he saw on college campuses, so where this all started, was reverse CBT. Instead of teaching those skills, don't catastrophize. You're actually told you can get more attention. You can actually get what you want. You can get the change you want. If you'll say, if you don't do A, if you don't get the speaker not speaking on campus, if you don't give me what I want in the new rule book, then I could kill myself. Uh, there could be great harm to a lot of people. It could be a catastrophe if I don't get what I want. There was a lot of black and white thinking. It was, you will do exactly what I want. I'm not coming to compromise. I'm not coming to have a chat about how people who think differently might come to some kind of middle ground. I must have exactly what I want or catastrophe will fall. There's fortune telling. If you allow this to happen on campus, then these people are going to feel these ways. It's going to cause this kind of destruction to people. There's a lot of emotional reasoning. Not coming to a discussion with a plus B equals C logic, but just coming into a discussion with my feelings. I feel I, f- I feel all my feels. And so I need to be given what I want. And so they have the premise in their book, again, that lead, has led a lot of people to more depression, more anxiety, more misery. Yes, it happened to liberal girls first, but this happened to a lot of people. Here was their three themes from their book. We are teaching people, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker all, two, always trust your feelings. And three, life is a battle between good people and evil people. When you, have, when you believe those three falsehoods, of course you're going to end up in more depression and more anxiety. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. So if you've experienced challenge, you experience some kind of negativity, you have negative emotions, if your attitude is, I must avoid negativity, then, or, or it's going to kill me, you're of course never going to get stronger. If you feel anything negative at all, you're going to, you think, I'm only going to get weak if I experience negativity, where cognitive behavioral therapy, and also, by the way, a spiritual life will recognize, no, the, the Lord's refining me. Good things are happening when I'm challenged. I'm going to grow a little bit because of the challenge. Two, this idea that you can always trust your feelings. If you're feeling it, if you're feeling angry, if you're feeling rage, if you're feeling sadness, if you're feeling cheated, if you feel that way at all, it is important, it's true, it's real, it's objective, and you should behave likewise, or, or behave in the light of your feelings, Not you, so you always trust them. And then finally, that life is a battle between good people and evil people. We used to have a, a recognition, some kind of plurality in a society where people didn't disagree a lot. You still come to a discussion knowing, I, mean, I, I gotta live with this person, and there, there's, there's not just good and evil, we just think differently. We have some different priorities, and so I want to come to a discussion to build something. 
Instead, if, if you are doing a true good versus evil world, you don't want to build something with these people. You don't want to compromise and, and live together. You want to destroy. So those three things, the, the attorney actually says to the, you know, the attorney, Lukianoff, says to the mental health guy, Height, I think we're literally teaching people to be depressed. Be, <laughs> one of the ways he says it is, yeah, the, the world can be a depressing place, but depression can make the world sad. If you're looking through, if you already have trained your brain to be depressed, all of the bad things that do come across are only going to be exacerbated and magnified. All right, so they put that out into the world. Um, these, the theories of why people are, are getting sadder, especially liberal girls first. And so people start responding. Again, these are two lefty, lefties putting it out into the world, and lefties start to respond. One of the columnists of the New York Times, Michelle Goldberg, says, no, it's not, it's not that colleges are doing that. It's that the world is actually bad. The, the, she called it a, a late-stage capitalist hellscape, trying to get through a pandemic with global warming coming to kill us all. Her argument is liberal girls, and for that matter, folks on the left in general, are seeing the world as it is, and the world is terrible and diminishing and falling apart, and of course we're going to be depressed when we see reality as it is. She's certainly arguing, as well, another story from the same group of guys. It wasn't these two, but they're, they travel in thermal circles uh, about a, a well-being study that recently just showed the happiness levels of folks on the right are much greater on the left. And so she's just arguing, you see reality, reality's terrible, that's why they're oppressed. Enter then a response from another columnist on the left, a guy named Matthew Iglesias. He says, yeah, certainly... There are things to make us depressed. But if you have a pre-existing disposition to depression, then challenging things like, let's, let's give them what they want here, late-stage capitalism, terrible inequality, uh, pandemic, climate change, all that, you're going to see them even more harshly. He wrote, he wrote it exactly this way. Depression makes reality look terrible. Mentally processing ambiguous events with, a ne- with negativity is what depression is. It's a very, very good point. That if you have an underlying predisposition to see things negatively, you're actually going to roll your roll depression even more. And I think there's a worldview question there that we need to address. But let me finish with Matthew Iglesias. He said it this way. Something he learned in all his years of therapy for his depression was to stop saying... So-and-so made me angry by doing X. Instead, you say, so-and-so did X, and I reacted by becoming angry. And then you're supposed to ask yourself, did, did me getting angry help? Did my emotional reaction make anything better? What cognitive behavioral therapy did for, for him and for the attorney earlier, Lukianoff, is give you, here's key, key worldview difference, agency. That's in part what these guys find as they continue to dig in deep on survey data, is that starting about 2011, 2012, somehow, I don't know, it is correlated with the rise of social media, but correlation isn't causation, none of us know the connection, is that particularly young people on the left started feeling out of control, that they had no control over their lives. And so consider how much easier it is to catastrophize to think everything is a, is a battle between good and evil, how easy it is to get negative when you think you have no control and you're being told all negative things constantly. 
this is one of the long-standing knowledge we have in the mental health world is the people that feel the most control in their lives are the most happy. We are happier when we feel like we can do A, B, C, and D and expect uh, consequences one, two, three, and four uh, that that our sowing of seed will reap in reward, that if we work hard, we can get what we want. But when you feel like there's that's not true and you're not in control, that powerful forces outside of you are going to end up being the determining factor of your life, well, of course you feel worse. Of course that leads to worry, anxiety, sadness, depression. Of course it does. So one of the things they, they found as they continue to dig into this data is a, a word that I didn't even know, and it's been traced since the 50s in the mental health world, called self-derogation, which is basically uh, asking people questions, how do you feel about yourself, just your, like a self-esteem question, but your, uh, your ability to control your life or affect the world around you? And what they have found here in the last 10 to 12 years, that the folks on that young people self-identified on the left are coming up feeling powerless. That they have, that they agree with statements like, I have no real control over the outcomes of, of my life, or if, no matter how hard I try, the outcome is going to be the same. Where folks on the right, it, it stayed flat or even got a little bit higher, as in kids on the right thinking, I, I do have control. Teenagers on the right, early 20s saying, I have control over the outcomes of my life. When you feel in control that you can work and get what you work and get something out of it, you're, of course, you're going to feel better about it. Now, we got to take a break. When we come back, I want to give you one more interesting outcome I thought from those, from those studies and then talk about my why. Why is it true that folks that lean on the American political right are generally happier? You probably already have an indication on why I think that is, but we'll talk about it in depth when you come back for the rest and the final segment of the Corey Truax Show that's going to be at least on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. We'll be back in just a minute. Admittedly, it does feel weird that we're going out just doing like a normal show. It feels like I should be doing something more dramatic for the final segment on on live radio. Uh, but I, I suspect a lot of you will follow me on on the podcast. Hope you will find me, Corey Truax, here on the Corey Truax Show for the final time over these next 15 minutes here on his radio talk. But after that, CoreyTruax.com and wherever you find the podcast. Let me encourage you again. I'm going to put a Q&A question wherever you find the podcast. I want to know what you think the themes of this show are. I want to know what over nine years we have made normal to you uh, that you expect maybe even on the show when you tune in. Uh, but here's how we're going to finish. We've got all this mental health data that I've covered with you before uh, showing better outcomes for folks that lean right. Right now, there's a bit of a, a panic inside the mental health world regarding the degradation, the, de- the diminish- diminishing uh, mental health, particularly of young liberal people. And I, I don't want to go out and dance about that. That makes, me, that makes me sad. That makes me worried. As I see a world becoming secularized and therefore leaning left that hurts people we love people and so i want you to be prepared with thoughts theories on what people need to hear of course what they need to hear the most is the gospel that's the only thing that's going to ultimately change as we as we do that there's also some information that might be helpful in communicating with people so one of the big themes we found in the data thus far is disempowerment 
when people feel they are disempowered, they have no control, they're going to get depressed. That's one of the reasons, one of the ways I think we need to be ready to communicate that, hey, in this, in this world God made, there is a, a principle of sowing and reaping. And if you will sow, if you will get up, if you will work hard, if, you will do the, if you'll do the right things, there's some good things that can come to you. We believe in sowing and reaping. And heck, you can point to it a lot in this culture. There are individual stories and statistics that just show effort does end well for a lot of people. There are the exceptions are, are, are injustice, but the rule is effort ends in being rewarded. So the last thing I wanted to give you from that first article, and then I want to move over to another about the same topic, was they also found something I didn't know, thought it was very interesting. That the there were two Petri dishes online for young people in 2012, 13, 14, that probably accelerated and elevated this phenomenon of diverging mental health outcomes for right-leaning and left-leaning young people. First was Tumblr. I don't know anything about Tumblr, and when I heard them talk about it, I found out why. Uh, Tumblr was apparently a a site where people communicated a ton, but it wasn't like Facebook where you're supposed to know the people that you friend request. And it's basically taking people you actually know in physical life and then it's giving them an online presence. That's often what Instagram was or Snapchat was. You were taking people you actually know, have a connection to, and then bring them to a digital space. Tumblr was people purely in a digital space, but brought together by a mutual interest. So there would be a Harry Potter page type Tumblr, or there would be a Tumblr for any given affinity group. And what they found was it attracted young girls who wanted to connect. That's natural for girls. Girls like to connect a lot more than guys do. And so that kind of online connection brought a lot of girls to that site. And what was what was growing on that site was this idea of identity and uh, uniqueness. That everyone would, this is used being positive, this was used positively on Tumblr, that everyone was a snowflake that became one of the themes. And you want to be your best snowflake. And remember, we ended up using that as a pejorative, talking about people who are too sensitive. But it was built up big time on Tumblr for young girls to build your own identity, be your own self. And so when people would, uh, would uh, let's go with, denigrate that identity with an insult or say something negative about you, it was particularly, quote, harmful to them because a bad word about them is truly attacking them and their core and who they are. And so the language of speech being violence or that words really do can really hurt you, they're actually, they're actually physically painful, started to permeate on Tumblr and then moved over to the college campuses. You've, I mean, you've heard that over the last 10 or 15 years. On college campuses, when they protest some speaker, usually conservative type speaker or Christian speaker coming, it's because their words are going to cause violence. Their words hurt people. Like they talk about... This is, again, part of that anti-CBT, anti-cognitive behavioral therapy. They so catastrophize, they say, their words will kill people if you let them hear. Their words themselves are violent. That word used to mean something. I I know a lot of history. This has been a violent planet. And so there is a... when When you recognize the actual violence in history, Take that to the Native Americans on this continent. Take that to the Vikings in Northern Europe. Take that to the warring tribes throughout Central and Southern Europe. Take that over to Asia. This is in a violent planet. 
And so, of course, with that context, the idea of words being violent is absurd, but that picked up all kinds of speed, uh, picked up all kinds of uh, acceptance there on Tumblr with young girls connected to each other. Then, in almost its inverse, a bunch of guys are young guys, teens and early 20s, are gathering in a really poisonous online atmosphere called 4chan. A lot of terrible stuff comes out of 4chan. It, not almost, in, in response to the sensitivizing of these girls over on Tumblr, and, and generally these guys seeing the sensitivity coming up in their age group, they are offensive and aggressive and mean on purpose. And as happens with any cultural war, they fed off each other. So Tumblr would go to 4chan, find things to be, the users of Tumblr would go to 4chan and find things to be emotional about, find things to catastrophize about, to have black and white thinking and fortune telling about what these terrible people were going to do. And instead of controlling their thoughts, they brought it over to Tumblr and they all just stewed in it together, leading to even more of those what mental health people will call problems is the idea of the world being just a battle between good and evil and the folks on Tumblr knew they were the good ones. And then equally, the folks on 4chan would go over to Tumblr and see how everyone was crying and everyone was upset. And they'd bring that back over to, to 4chan and laugh about it and make fun of them for their reactions. And then both of those things permeate online into other spaces. But we have to recognize one of those reactions, one of those environments leads to weakness. One of those environments says, when someone does something that hurts me, it's, it, my, my reaction is always valid. It, all, of my, all of my feelings that de- der- uh, is to, to derivate, I think, the, the derivations of that feeling, everything that comes off of it, all that's valid, all that's to be trusted, then the the other environment does does the opposite. It says, I am I am in control of me. No matter what they do and what, what standards they have, I'm in control, which again is going to lead to happier outcomes. All right, now, uh, we only have, what do we got, eight minutes? Another article on this, it's from AmericanAffairsJournal.org. The, the guy writing here is a professor again in New York City. I am appreciative that it actually is folks on the left. They're not wokists, but it's folks on the left that are writing most about this deviation in happiness and being honest about it because they, they want to solve it. It's a very long article. I can't pronounce the, uh, the name of the guy who wrote it. If you want the link, just email me, CoreyTruactShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruactShow at gmail.com, or find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I'll send you a link. But after a very long read that I did for you, he came up with four conclusions from his perusal of the data and literature that documents this change in mental health in these two groups. I want to give you all four with some commentary along the way. Here was his four conclusions. One, there are likely some genetic and biological factors that predispose people towards mental illness, um, liberalism, conservatism, etc. So he's he is saying... Yeah, that there is some pre, there is a there's definitely a correlation between people who do naturally struggle with depression and then lean lean left. He he found in the literature those things that feed on each other. You are because you are predisposed to depression, you're attracted to ideologies that 
see the world negatively, and then they, they only give you more negativity that can lead back into that depression loop. But that's the least interesting of the four. Number two, net of these predispositions, conservatism probably helps adherents make sense of and respond constructively to adverse states of affair. These effects are independent of, but enhanced by, religiosity and patriotism. This is, I respect this conclusion. I think this is where, where I wanted to come to. One of the things that, by the way, I'm not saying conservatism is the answer. I'm saying there is a correlation here between those who are of faith, people that are Jesus following, tend to be more conservative. And because of that, they have more resources. That's what Tim Keller often calls it. More resources to process and respond to negativity. There's a natural hopefulness that we walk around with. And so when we encounter a negative state of affairs, a bad event, we have some resources to respond constructively and not catastrophize and not and not then set up shop to have war uh, black and white or to to do those other things that the cognitive behavioral therapists say are only going to lead to more depression. This is really, I think, the difference is when one group of people is more likely to be following Jesus and one is not, of course the group that's going to be Jesus following is going to have the resources not to live into, into their depression constantly, or at least be better at it. Number three from the conclusion here uh, from this scholar was some strains of liberal ideology liberal ideology likely exacerbate or incentivize anxiety, depression, or other forms of unhealthy thinking. Get that. They exacerbate anxiety, depression. So make them worse. By what? Constantly feeding on negativity. And then they incentivize them. How? Well, you'll get attention. You might get what you want. Now that does not to diminish the people who very real, very real struggles with those things that need help. They need to, to, to be cared for. But when the ideology gives you negativity, no resources to respond to it, the belief that all things are only going to get worse, and you're likely to get more attention from the group if you express these feelings, there is reason to feel them so that you can get, you can get that attention. All right, uh, number four here. Uh, people who are unwell may be especially attracted to liberal politics over conservatism for a variety of reasons, and this may exacerbate observed ideological gaps. To uh, turn that into layman's terms, these are self-reinforcing. If you're already given to a negative worldview, you're going to be attracted to people that also have that disposition and the ideas that reinforce that you're right. Believe me, I know this. We all love being told we're right. And so it ends up being a reinforcing circle of belief. Uh, what do I got? I have very little time. And so I think I'll finish on this one. It's one of the gaps I think we most need to work on for our kids and as we're just dealing with people we, we work with and interact with that are in our families. One of the things that a biblical worldview does for uh, setting people up for more stability, mental health, and happiness is an embrace of Genesis 3. We embrace that the world is broken. And so that when we see anything good, we're, we should be blown away. Our disposition should be positive because we know the world is broken. So when anyone gets reconciled, when anything goes well, when there is a... Uh, a nuclear family intact, we are, we are just grateful that those ha that happened because bad stuff is actually what's natural. In an unbiblical worldview, that is going to come out of this, these other ideologies. There is a bitterness that the world isn't perfect. 
there's an anger and a sadness when anything bad happens because that there's no reason to believe it wouldn't. Like we have Genesis three, we hold to it, and so our our disposition is, wow, cool, good stuff happened. And when bad stuff happens, we are sad about it, but we're not blown away by it. It doesn't knock us off of our uh, it doesn't knock us off our feet because we understand it. It's a resource that we have that folks don't, and that's why we, there needs to be some help here. You can actually in, you can instill or input biblical worldview just by tossing that out there. When you don't get flustered, when you're not blown when you're not blown away, sad or frustrated or angry at a given thing at work or in your family or wherever you travel, you can be distinct to put in that Christian worldview to to show that resource because the the other worldview being offered to the world right now gives you no resource for interpreting bad things. It's blown away, it's sad, it's embittered that anything bad happens because they don't know the world is broken by sin. Which leads me now to my final couple minutes. I think that's where I want to leave you. Actually, I, I like that the last thing I did on the terrestrial radio show is point to a thing happening in the world and then point to Genesis 3. Because if I have to leave you with anything today, for some, for some of you, you might not ever hear from me again. If you're terrestrial radio people and you don't follow along, let that be the last thing I say to you. There are lots of voices and lots of ideologies that want your attention, they want your affection, and you wa- they want you to see the world through their paradigm. I know I did it imperfectly, but I hope one of the things I have instilled in all of us as I've grown in it as well is that only one paradigm makes sense. Only one paradigm gives us all we need for life and godliness. There's only one paradigm by which to view the world that that's going to, that's going to do what people need that will that, glor- that will glorify God and be good for humans. And it is this scripture that is profitable for doctrine, what we need to know, for reproof, what can correct us, for instruction to tell us how to do and what to do and why to do it. I think it's where I want to leave you for the core true action on his radio talk at least. And let us be people of the book. At some point here in the future, I'll be back on the podcast. Find me at CoreyTruax.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time for the podcast, people, everybody, peace and love. Thanks to His Radio Talk.